We are so excited to have a very special guest with us today. Uh, Peng Cheng is from JP Morgan and leads the big data and AI strategy uh, research effort in New York. Uh, Peng is responsible for developing cross-asset investment strategies, leveraging alternative data and advanced statistical techniques. Previously, Peng covered equity derivative strategies in London. Prior to joining the bank in 2010, Peng was a convertible and volatility strategist at Lehman Brothers Barclays in New York. And Peng holds a master's from UC Berkeley and is a CFA charter holder. Uh, Peng, thank you so much for coming on today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, absolutely our pleasure. Um, so Peng is absolutely brilliant and we are really so lucky to have him with us and I'm so thankful and I'm excited for what we can learn today. So I've got to start with, you know, how did you get excited by machine learning, uh, specifically versus you know, nanotech or anything else that could have you know, piqued that gigantic brain of yours? Oh, I mean, machine learning, I think at the end of the day is uh, using whatever data is available and to tell a story. So I think that's something very, very interesting, not only in finance, but you know, across different industries, right? Because oh. the data is exploding. Right. I mean, I think uh, I read somewhere that 80% of data in the world is generated over the last two years. But even you know, before that, we had so much data that was untapped that, you know, yeah. yeah, we want to use statistical techniques to help us understand the world, help us understand the universe. So I think that's something very, very exciting. And when it comes to finance specifically, I think maybe up to very recently, most of these statistical models have been linear and relatively simple. So they do a good job, but I think they definitely do better. So that's where machine learning comes in. And uh, we introduce a number of nonlinear models, maybe more sophisticated models to do a better job at uh, telling the story using the existing data. And perhaps with this data, we can you know, explore maybe more uh, exploration to discover more new data. So, you know, it's very exciting. I oh, know that's, that's so true. And I think even when you consider um, some of the godfathers of our industry, like uh, Professor Turing, you know, being able to tell a story from an extremely opaque or complicated, uh, you know, data set. It's one thing to have a, a granular data set where, you know, you can use some uh, functions and come across with some pretty, you know, obvious answers. But when you have gigantic, semi-related and semi-unrelated data sets, finding the story becomes very, very, very hard for a human being. And so, um, you know, it, it's, it's a, there's a reason I think uh, you and I both love machine learning. So let's talk about how uh, you're using it today. Yeah, so I think it's uh, JP Morgan. So first of all, my role, as you mentioned, is in uh, research. So what we do is we help our clients, which are basically on the buy side, hedge funds, asset managers, portfolio managers within these organizations to make decisions to invest and at the end of the day, help them make money, hopefully. Uh, so I think there's a lot of uh, areas where machine learning can come in and I think we certainly don't have to reinvent the wheel, but just we can apply machine learning to a lot of the day-to-day -day processes and optimize it. For example, for even for discretionary portfolio managers, they can uh, enhance their decision-making process by using 
machine learning uh, formalize their maybe previously relatively discretionary or unsystematic approach. So that will help them and it will help them understand their and improve their investment approach, right? But you know, moreover for system, uh, systematic investors as well, like I said, whereas before you may have a system, uh, systematic strategy, which may involve relatively simple rules, but those rules can certainly be optimized. Mm -hmm. And using machine learning, they can be optimized relatively easily and achieve, just based on our experience, very um, significant improvement and sometimes moderate improvements, but most of the time at a cost that is relatively uh, small. So if you can achieve any degree of you know, performance improvements with relatively little cost, why not do it? So that's kind of uh, the things uh, we focus on. So yeah, I can give you some examples if you want. Oh, yeah, no, we'd love examples, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, so some of them could be just very simply portfolio optimization problems. And as I said, normally or historically, uh, the assumption has been, you know, assets are normally distributed and then we apply mean variance optimization. But more and more, we, we've discovered that this kind of assumptions are not sufficient, right? I mean, you know, what happened in February, March this year or February, 2018, just to name a couple of instances just over the last couple of years. So more and more people realize that, okay, we need to account for these kind of higher moments. So whether they are, you know, left skewed distribution or fat tails or even higher moments, um, how do we do it? So that requires relatively complicated mathematics. And sometimes, you know, there's no closed form for solving these kind of problems and we need more computationally intensive tools to do it and machine learning comes in and it's great because at the end of the day, you know, all of the problems in finance are optimization problems, right? Mm -hmm. And most of the problems in machine learning are also at the end of the day optimization problems. So a lot of the things can, can be applied relatively directly and we can see very good uh, improvements. Well, very well said. I, no, I, love, uh, I love the way you put uh, a, really a very complicated, um, idea into a very kind of, uh, you know, easy to understand uh, way. It's, you know, it's really amazing how machine learning really is just an optimizer at the end of the day. It it's, it's gets hyped up uh, by the media and whatnot. But uh, you know, jumping back to something much simpler, I have a million friends at JP Morgan and they all love it. They're obsessed. Uh, you know, it's, it's really, uh, you know, I, it's one of the places where the, the, the love that the people who work there go so deep uh, with the institution, you know, from you know, Jamie Dimon all the way down. So uh, I've got to, you know, hear about your impressions. Oh, I mean, you know, working at JP Morgan, yeah, I've worked at JP Morgan for, I think, actually this, this year is my 10th year. So actually, I think I just got on my 10th year anniversary. Um, yeah, I mean, it's great because uh, I think even though JP Morgan is a very big organization within JP Morgan, you have commercial bank, you have corporate bank, you have investment bank, et cetera, et cetera. But at the end of the day, I think it's a culture that emphasizes on uh, collaboration. Mm -hmm. You know, this, such a huge organization cannot possibly function without people working with each other. And I think that's what gets rewarded at JP Morgan. You know, if you get along with people and you work with other people to achieve a common goal, then this valued more than if you just say, okay, I'll go it alone and do whatever I want to do. And maybe, 
in the short term, it may be add some value to the bottom line, but in the long term, it's no. probably not good for the organization. So I would say JP Morgan is kind of a company that's emphasizes on collaboration, on working together on consensus. And uh, that's, you know, in my view, how it ends up where it is in the industry today. And collaboration is so often uh, the secret to so many great firms of success. You know, at uh, Rebellion Research, you know, we, uh, we try and sit down with absolutely the smartest people in the quantitative AI and just general technology space. And the one thing we find from Honeywell's uh, AI research division to, you know, to Sigma, uh, really the best of the best, focus so much on collaboration. And I, I know that at JP Morgan, it, it's amazing how much you know, inter-collaboration there is and how often I'll have one friend from a department you know, in another city and we'll know another friend of mine uh, who's in another department. So it's, uh, you know, it's, it's great to see that. Um, you know, a lot of you know, older, uh, you know, more stoic institutions are scared of embracing machine learning. And you know, just, I think it was a year ago, uh, I was on a panel at the Managed Funds Association conference in Miami and 55% of fund managers did not use any form of AI or machine learning whatsoever in any way, shape, or form. Um, but something like 99%, uh, you know, I think everybody except for one grumpy person said they wanted to uh, explore. And so speaking of the future, where do you see uh, you know, machine learning uh, in the next five to 10 years, uh, the industry? Love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, sure. So I think in the next five to 10 years, it's not going to replace humans in most of the functions. Now, maybe there are some, for example, in, in some functions like uh, cash equity trading, I think you know, electronic trading has displaced some human traders. But I would say that generally speaking, for most of our jobs, uh, at least in the kind of client-facing roles, some some functions can be automated, but others cannot. And you cannot just say, okay, your job is, can 50% be automated, and therefore I'll just, uh, you know, find the machine to do 50% of your job and then get rid of you. So I would say that generally speaking, machine learning will be used to facilitate what uh, we do currently to improve our job efficiency. Uh, but it's not going to replace humans. And that kind of goes back to where I said before, where I think most of the return on investment one can get from using or applying machine learning techniques is by enhancing their existing decision-making process, optimizing your models, optimizing your uh, screens or you know, systematic strategies in general, more so than coming up coming up with a totally new investment strategy or model that is uh, replaces human. I don't think that's going to be the mainstream. So I would say in yeah, the next five to 10 years, um, you know, things will, you'll see a much more prevalent use of machine learning. And you know, there are definitely a lot of areas in machine learning that helps you do that. I think a lot of times we see on the news that, okay, machine learning AI can, replace the best as a human chess player or they can do automated driving but you know i would say in general those are obviously how i'm making use but you know what can actually add value to a company or to the economy are the relatively uh, behind the scenes uh, functions 
Yeah, no, people forget that when IBM brought Watson to Jeopardy, they actually had to feed the questions to Watson ahead of time. So Watson had something like, I think it was a, you know, a tenth of a second advantage on the other players. So, you know, without those engineers facilitating, uh, you know, Watson's ability to communicate with the Jeopardy questions, you know, Watson would have been useless. So, you know, so often without the human, uh, you know, you really can't use the technology. Yeah, that's absolutely true. Actually, it's funny you mentioned that because I had uh, an opportunity to work with a kind of NLP startup, okay, and uh, their chief technology officer actually used to work on the Watson team. And that's, and then we, we hosted some investor uh, seminars mm -hmm. to discuss NLP. And he basically said the same thing as you did. You know, we had, he said, you know, we have people backstage feeding Watson these questions. And most of the attendees were really, really surprised because they thought, okay, Watson was such an amazing invention and it had human brains and, you know, process the processors. But actually at the end of the day, it's not so magical, especially considering this was something like 25 years ago, right? Yeah. So, so yeah, so definitely, you know, we, we have come a long way, but I would say the principles have not changed. You know, human element is still quite important. Yeah. No, I, you know, Watson's a very impressive piece of technology. And just as a disclaimer, um, you know, the director of Watson Security, uh, you know, brilliant um, scientist, uh, Dr. Harold Moss, is also a board member of Rebellion Research and a good friend of mine. Uh, really uh, just a, a fantastic guy. And so, um, you know, I have to say, you know, Watson is very, very impressive. But, you know, it's something that had to be, you know, very specifically taken care of. It was not something that I could, you know, and a singularity, cutting to the chase, singularity is very far away in my opinion. We're not anywhere near singularity. We're so at the dawn of the dawn, uh, you know, rather like, you know, Cortez has come to the new world, he's burned his sails, but, uh, you know, I, I don't even think we're at Plymouth Rock quite yet. So, um, and, and, and there's really so much hype in the media that pushes it. But speaking of hype, um, at the NYU Career Fair in January, I couldn't get over how many of the students were just saying the term reinforcement learning, reinforcement learning, reinforcement learning. It's like a wave, the way it's uh, swept across Wall Street. Similar to NLP, I mean, NLP is, every headstone I know wants to hire an NLP person at this point. But you know, reinforcement learning is also extremely in vogue. And I'd love your thoughts on RL versus deep learning. Yeah, so deep learning, I would say that it's, still in the kind of uh, realm of um, what we've been doing for the last, I would say since linear regression, why? Because it's still supervised learning. Mm -hmm. okay? And then when you look at the structure for deep learning, at the end of the day, it's trying to minimize, as I said, some kind of these squares, for example, the documentation problem. So it is obviously more complicated than linear regression, but the philosophy is the same. You know, it's an evolution or you know, uh, a step up from linear regression. Um, and uh, we know the drawbacks, we understand the drawbacks, the advantages of these supervised learning techniques. And, you know, a lot of times I find that there's, um, generally speaking, you know, the limitations are also common. Limitations in the sense that, okay, you may have non-stationary data and mm -hmm. therefore um, the data set, even though you think you may have a very large data set, 
but because of non-station narrative, what you can actually use is quite small. And a lot of times the data points, the number of data points may be smaller than your parameters yeah. after you've adjusted for the non-station narrative. Okay, and the problem with deep learning is that that's almost by definition its um, feature, which is okay, having a large number of uh, parameters. And that's basically how it achieves exactly. these in sample, very, very good fit. But you know, anyway, at the end of the day, I think we understand these things relatively well. We, uh, and you know, that's part of role, that's part of the responsibility of, let's say a machine learning researcher as well, is to understand, okay, you know, no model fits everything or fits all the situations. And you know, in some situations, you know, deep learning works really, really well, and in other situations, you know, linear regression works really well. It's like, you know, a jet engine is fantastic for a 737, but if you put it on a Mercedes-Benz, uh, you're not going to have a you know, very optimal result. So, you know, engines must be applied in the direct way. Or, or I, I joke that it's like an outboard uh, motor on a rowboat, and in a lake, it's very efficient, but bring it to uh, the ocean, and all of a sudden, your efficiency, you know, uh, can fall apart. And that's often how it is when you work with uh, machine learning, you know, you really have to spoon feed the data, you have to minimize, uh, you know, the noise. And, you know, with deep learning, if you're pricing derivative options for 50 years, it can be very, very useful. But when you're dealing with synthetic data and a lack of data, all of a sudden it becomes very, you know, not, not the way to, to move forward. But, uh, you know, we're coming uh, close to the end. So uh, I just want to say, you know, thank you so much for coming on today. You know, you, you really are one of the uh, uh, more brilliant uh, mathematicians I've come across in Wall Street, and I you know, couldn't be more thankful uh, thank for coming on. So, uh, yeah, have a great afternoon, and thank you so much. Thank you. I mean, I'm, I should add that there are a lot of great mathematicians on Wall Street, oh, and uh, I'm really flattered that you would say that. But, you know, I'm definitely standing on the shoulders of other giants when it comes to machine learning research. Uh, yeah, no, I mean, Marcos Lopez de Prada, Igor Halperin, uh, Gordon Ritter, uh, you know, there are a lot of very brilliant guys out there, uh, but, uh, you know, there are very few, I think, at your level, and uh, I just appreciate your time, and you're extremely busy, so uh, thank you so much, and uh, I'll let you get back to your work. Yeah, thank you very much.